Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, we discuss the possibilities and limitations of radical social change under progressive governments with Mexico City journalist and Sojourner Truth regular, Laura Carlson. Countries to focus on include Colombia, Chile, Honduras, and Mexico. And Dr. Gerald Horn fills us in on key developments in Africa. This as the continent is increasingly a target of influence by Russia, China, and Western powers. The reality on the ground, 346 million people, a quarter of the entire population of the continent, are facing food insecurity, starvation due to drought exacerbated by climate change, the violence on people and the environment as a result of poverty, internal proxy wars and corruption, the war in Ukraine as grain exports from Ukraine to the continent plummeted due to the war there. This, as Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov has embarked on a tour of four African nations and French President Macron is also touring three African countries. And China has outpaced the EU as a major trading partner on the continent. Africa, no doubt, is at the heart of what many are calling a new Cold War. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia announced he's reached an expansive agreement with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer on health care costs, energy and climate issues, taxing higher earners in large corporations and reducing the federal debt. Manchin and Schumer said the measure would raise $739 billion over 10 years in revenue, the biggest chunk coming from a 15 percent corporate minimum tax. Schumer and Manchin said the Senate will consider the legislation next week, presumably under so-called budget reconciliation rules that would allow passage by a simple majority in the evenly divided Senate, with Vice President Kamala Harris casting the tie-breaking vote. Mary Sherman has more. This is something we've waited for for a very long time. More than a year after negotiations began, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Senator Joe Manchin struck an energy and health care deal, part of a budget reconciliation package Democrats plan to pass on a party-line vote. It invests $369 billion in energy climate programs, $300 billion to reduce the deficit, lowers prescription drug prices, and extends health care subsidies. And it faces opposition from Republicans, including Senator Joni Ernst, who blamed historically high inflation on Democratic spending proposals. Bidenomics is driving up the cost of everything. And the Democrats' solution is to spend even more of your hard-earned money. The legislation would be paid for by a 15 percent corporate minimum tax, savings from empowering Medicaid to negotiate lower drug prices and closing tax loopholes. I'm Mary Sherman for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. 
Environmental groups and progressive lawmakers doubled down on their call for President Joe Biden to declare a climate emergency Wednesday. Eileen Alfandari has more. New Mexico's Melanie Stansberry said rivers in the West are running dry. We can't wait. Our planet cannot wait. Our communities cannot wait. And the ecosystems on which we depend cannot wait. Hundreds of millions in the country are facing deadly heat waves. Jean Sue is with the Center for Biological Diversity and helped author a report that spelled out the powers that Biden could invoke with a climate emergency declaration. That means unlocking military funds to actually go towards reconstruction of our system so that it is renewable and just and distributed. And what it also does is stop the hundred of billions of dollars every year that leave from BlackRock and other financial institutions here towards coal, oil, and gas projects abroad, poisoning people there. Those are things that he all can do with the stroke of his pen with a climate emergency declaration. An emergency declaration also could spur domestic industry to manufacture renewable energy and clean transportation technologies. I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. The Federal Reserve raised its benchmark interest rate by a hefty three-quarters of a point Wednesday for a second straight time in its most aggressive drive in three decades to tame high inflation. The decision follows a jump in inflation to 9 percent, the fastest annual rate in 41 years. Raising borrowing rates will make it costlier to take out a mortgage or an auto or business loan. Consumers and businesses then presumably borrow and spend less, cooling the economy and slowing inflation. But critics like Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren say the Fed is taking a short-sighted approach that could lead to a recession, noting there are multiple factors leading to global inflation out of federal Chair Jerome Powell's control. He also cannot control supply chain kinks. He also cannot control COVID outbreaks. He also cannot control price gouging by companies with market dominance. My only point is, before he engages in yet another round of historic rate increases, that we think of this as an all-of-the-above approach. Jerome Powell can't fix everything, but if he uses his one tool very aggressively, he runs the risk of having the Fed push our economy into a recession. And I think that's a risk we should not take. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell said he expects the Fed to continue to increase interest rates to 3 percent over the course of the year. A House investigation has found that gun manufacturers have taken in more than $1 billion from selling AR-15-style guns over the past decade. The report said the weapons are marketed to young men as a sign of manhood. Sales have been rising. The AR-15 has also been used in recent mass shootings in Buffalo, New York, Uvalde, Texas, and Highland Park, Illinois. Christopher Martinez reports. Gun industry executives testified before Congress for the first time in nearly two decades Wednesday at a hearing titled Examining the Practice and Profits of Gun Manufacturers. Witnesses included executives from two large gun manufacturers, while a third refused to attend. Christopher Colloy is president and CEO of Stern Ruger and Company. The chair of the House Oversight Committee, Democrat Carolyn Maloney of New York, questioned him about Stern Ruger's marketing practices. How many more American children need to die before your company will stop selling assault weapons to civilians and children, the weapon of choice in most mass murders in our country? 
Congresswoman Maloney, I believe that these murders are local problems that have to be solved locally. She asked both executives whether they would apologize to victims of mass shootings using their products. Kiloy declined. To blame the firearm, in pr the particular firearm in use here that we're talking about, modern sporting rifles, thank you. to blame the firearm as an inanimate object. We Reporting for Pacifica Radio News KPFA, I'm Christopher Martinez. Ukraine is celebrating its statehood today, and Russia launched 25 rocket strikes from Belarus on Ukraine's capital, Kiev, and north in Cherniv. At least five people are dead and 25 injured, say Ukrainian officials. I'm Christina Onestead, reporting for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And today we are going to kick off our show with discussing the possibilities and limitations of radical social change under progressive governments um, with Mexico City um, based journalist and Sojourner Truth regular Laura Carlson. Laura, welcome. Thanks, Margaret. It's a pleasure to be here as always. Yes, Laura Carlson, director of the Americas Program, works with Just Associates, an international feminist organization based in Mexico City. She's a regular contributor to America's Updater, Foreign Policy in Focus, Counterpunch, and several Spanish language publications. Laura is also a television host and commentator on globalization, the drug war, immigration, and gender issues for various international news outlets. Now, now, uh, Laura, quite a lot going on uh, south of the border and perhaps looking for a place to start. I mean, Colombia, a lot of excitement happening now in Colombia with the election of Gustavo Petro and also his running mate. Francia Marquis, who is a former domestic worker, environmental activist, and the first uh, woman of African descent to become vice president in Colombia. But that election happened on June 19th. But there are a lot of challenges this government will face. Give us your assessment. That's right, Margaret. It is really exciting. I had the privilege of being there in the elections. In fact, I was in this town that Francia Marquez, the vice president now, is from an Afro-Colombian indigenous town in the department of Cauca. It was very exciting. The people were really, really enthusiastic. When they got the news, they poured out into the streets. And it's a real sea change for Colombia. Colombia has historically been a bastion of U.S. imperialism in the region, especially since Plan Colombia that was uh, basically initiated and, um, and run by Joe Biden, which we'll get to in a little bit. And it's also been the country that has the highest rate of internal displacement due to decades of internal conflict, as well as the second highest of internal displacement and the first highest in the assassination of uh, land and environmental defenders. So it's coming from a place of very high violence, but many of my friends in Colombia who are part of the social movement say is really a war of extermination against the people. It's a takeover of territories. It's a lack of rule of law. And of course, the paramilitary violence in, in the drug trafficking is a factor that any government will have to deal with. 
the excitement comes from the inclusion. The fact is that it was really the Afro-Colombian communities and the indigenous communities that put Petro over the edge. Colombia has two rounds of voting, and in the first round, he won handily, and then the right wing united around an independent candidate who defeated the Uribe, the former president's candidate in this race. And it's a 77-year-old multimillionaire who tried to present himself as a candidate of change, very conservative, very capitalist, very anti-woman. He made declarations that women should not be in politics. And so it was going to be a tight race, and it was the voting in record numbers of these communities with the true belief that they would finally be represented in government that put Petro into office. Now he's forced to form alliances, in fact, with some of his old enemies in order to be able to govern, especially because of the composition of Congress. But there's some very interesting promises and governmental proposals on the table that include gender equity, they include land reform, they include uh, creating territorial, territorial kind of assemblies where the people themselves can continue to be organized and participate within the government. So we're really looking forward to see how that happens. Right. And, you know, the the role of the United States here, I, there are a number of other countries we want to move on to, but the U.S. behind the scenes um, backed uh, Hernandez, actually, and that didn't work out uh, very well. Uh, so it remains to be seen because a lot of people are saying this is a sea change. And Laura, I would also encourage people to read your article in the, the Nation magazine, a really excellent article entitled In Colombia, A Government of Calloused Hands. But tell us about the callous hands. Why the title of that article? This is a quote from Francia Marquez, the new vice president, when she went to the victory demonstration right after the results came out. And what she's talking about, she also called it a government of the nobodies. She's talking about that inclusion. She's talking about the fact that for the first time, communities that were persecuted have been included in both the campaign, in the promises, and now through her especially, because so many of those Afro-Colombian communities identified very closely with her. I had the opportunity to travel to the Pacific Coast. 80% of those communities, which are largely Afro-Colombian, voted for Petro and Marquez. And it was really for them, Francia Marquez, who was the candidate. So this is really important new feature. And what remains to be seen is to what extent the government continues to govern with the people who put it in office. What kinds of mechanisms will there be to include the social movements? Because in Colombia, the, the people are highly organized. The Afro-Colombian communities actually have, in by law, control over the territories where they are, and the same is true for the indigenous communities. You mentioned also the role of the United States, and I talked about how Joe Biden was an architect of playing Colombia. We just had a meeting last week where, where Biden sent a delegation down to talk to Petro. There's some bad signs coming out of that meeting. For one thing, the delegation was national security people. Now that doesn't make sense if you're looking at a diplomatic relationship with a new president. You're not going to be looking at it or you shouldn't be looking at it solely from the point of view 
of your country's national security. And yet it was the deputy advisor of national security, Jonathan Feiner, who led that delegation. In addition, they had a meeting with the outgoing president, Ivan Duque, who was a disaster for Colombia and who is in many ways the arch enemy of Gustavo Petro. That wasn't necessary, and yet it was again a sign. And finally, much of the meeting was focused on the drug war, which Petro has criticized and vowed to change because of the huge human costs and environmental costs with fumigation and some of the other methods that are used for Colombia. So if the Biden administration is going to try to insist on these old policies that Petro has already said have to change immediately, we're going to see some confrontations. And I think it's really important for all people who care about democracy in Colombia to be very aware of what kind of pressures the U.S. government is going to put on the new Petro Marquez government. Yeah, and we have to expect that, don't we, Laura? Because that is the MO of the United States, uh, quietly behind the scenes, be undermining uh, a government that it sees is, is too progressive. Um, just, we, we want to move on, but I just want to highlight that really exciting that uh, Petro, um, August 7th, he's going to take office and uh, he has announced an emergency campaign against which you talk about in your article. And he also talks about balancing with nature, um, about greenhouse uh, gases, and, and also urging other progressive governments not to rely on, you know, oil and, and gas, but really look for other alternatives. And I'm really hopeful for that because we're very worried in the Caribbean region with the large um, oil that has been found off the coast of Guyana in the Caribbean Sea, that oil exploration will move forward there and that even the Prime Minister of Barbados, who's been so outspoken on climate issues, it's a little unclear what her position is going to be on deep sea drilling of oil in the Caribbean Sea and all of the dangers in, involved there. So that remains to be seen. But Laura, also Chile, another, a lot of excitement uh, happening there, a change in, in government also to the left and a, a new constitution being developed, Laura. Right. Well, yes, last year we saw the election of Gabriel Boric, a young left-wing candidate, now president, who has already taken office. And this July 4th, the Constitutional Convention, made up of 154 members from all sectors of society, delivered its end result, the text of a new constitution for Chile. You have to remember that the constitution that they presently have was actually written and adopted during the Pinochet dictatorship. And what it does essentially, in addition to eliminating human rights as a consideration is lock in a neoliberal model in which the state is dominated by the market system. So as the huge protests erupted in the year 2019, Chile demanded a huge change that would, that would actually address the inequality that has risen with the FTA and the neoliberalism there and also the lack of any kind of safety net or guarantee for basic social and economic rights. The result of those protests was to go into this constitutional convention in which feminist organizations, indigenous peoples, workers are from all over the country are represented. 
it wasn't an easy process. In fact, they themselves, the president of the Constitutional Convention called it chaotic and imperfect, but they've come up with the result and it's, it's a complete change for the way the government and the state itself sees itself. It guarantees social rights. It guarantees absolute gender parity, which is a first in the sense that 50% at least, and it can go over that, of all governmental institutions have to be occupied or posts have to be occupied by women. It also allows and guarantees women's sexual and reproductive rights as well as the right to abortion. And Chile has been one of the countries that had the most strict laws against abortion in Latin America. So it's coming up with a proposal that really changes what the legal framework for the country has been up to now and responds to the basic demands of the youth-led protests of the last couple of years. The problem is that there's been a huge campaign by the right against it. And in fact, now the polls are showing that the new constitution that's been in the works for more than a year now could possibly lose this vote. So we're all watching with care. The president has said that if it loses this vote, they'll, they'll start a new process, that this constitution has to change and the new process will start if in fact the right wing wins on the plebiscite that's due for September 4th. Wow, uh, so we have to keep our fingers and, and toes crossed there. I mean, the new constitution, I was excited to see that it recognizes the right of nature and expresses concern for animals as sentient beings. I thought that was really interesting and, and also giving official recognition to indigenous people who are, who are living in, in the country. But we know the new government is, will be up against a lot. We know that they have already been protests since he has been in office, right? And people calling for accountability. And Laura, you always have to scratch your head and wonder when these kinds of protests break out against left-leaning governments, how much right-wing forces may be behind those, even though a lot of the demands of those protests are likely quite legitimate. So we'll have to see, Laura. You'll keep us posted, I'm sure. So moving on now with the time that we have to Honduras, we have Xiomara Castro, first woman president there, and she is up against a lot of me. Her husband, as our listeners may recall, was removed in a U.S. back coup, right, Manuel Zelaya. So uh, what about the situation there? How is she balancing things and how is that looking? Really quickly, I want to comment first on the rights of nature because it is very important and also on the climate change platform in Petro's government. What we're seeing with these progressive governments, and this is also true of the Honduran government, is a turn away not only from the neoliberal model, but from what is one of the pillars of the neoliberal model, which is extractive industry. The reliance on raw materials through the extraction by transnational corporations, including mining, including oil and gas, as you mentioned, and also including monocropping and hydroelectric dams, and including in some cases green, so-called green projects, but with a corporate model behind them. So this is a major development among progressive governments, but it's not universal. It's been one of the criticisms of them. In Honduras, I think what's really interesting about Honduras is that it's a feminist president. She, again, got to office through strong alliances with grassroots movements. You could see when she took office 
that standing right next to her was the daughter of Berta Cáceres, the famous environmental and feminist defender who was murdered in 2016. She was standing there with uh, what they call the bastón de mando. It's the staff of indigenous peoples to represent her support for the government, but also to say, we will be here. You know, you cannot abandon us. And what that is one of the big differences we may see if they have enough margin in this government in Honduras, the difference in progressive governments between getting into office and governing for the people, like the Mexican model, in which the government says, we will now be your, the representatives of your issues, but there's no further contact or dialogue that takes place, or getting into office and governing with the people, which seems to be a possibility in both Colombia and Honduras. In Honduras, they've created platforms in which there's direct line to the cabinet of Xiomara Castro, and in some cases to the president, to develop the new government. And again, we're looking at the limitations. Even though the ex-president is indicted as a drug trafficker, it was really a narco dictatorship that they were facing when she took office and won the election. There's still a huge structure, governmental structure that he has left in place that has been built up in the post-coup years by successive regimes that represented coup interests and also supported by the U.S. government, that would be very difficult for her to dismantle. It includes legislation, it includes the judicial arm of government. And so little by little, they're having to chip away at that at the same time that the coffers have been completely depleted and they have a government that has very few resources with which to work. So social movements will really be fundamental to making any kind of change there and will be necessary to not only supporting their own demands, but also to keeping the government afloat in many ways as it faces down these challenges from the right wing, from the former institutions, and also, again, possibly from the U.S. government in terms of limiting the kinds of uh, especially changes that in fact that affect international investors and that seek to take resources and the benefits of the natural resources back to the people themselves. Yeah, and Laura Carlson, our guest Laura Carlson, in both Colombia and Honduras, it seems as though there is recognition of those administrations, the importance of continuing to build a movement on the ground. You know, in the United States, a lot of people were very disappointed when the movement and it was a movement that helped to elect Barack Obama after he got elected, pretty much said, well, go home and didn't really do anything to continue to build that movement. So at least in those two countries, I don't know how much that is true in Chile, but certainly from what you're saying for Colombia and Honduras, that is the case. You may want to quickly comment on that. And then we do have to move on to Mexico also. I mean, AMLO, Mexico's president, as he is generally known, AMLO, met recently with with the Biden administration. And I'll have to say in relation to Haiti, one of the things that came out, I suspect, of that meeting was a joint U.S.-Mexico resolution to the U.N. Security Council that limited, you know, some of the 
small arms and light weapons and ammunition that goes to Haiti. China was pushing for a total arms embargo, but lost out on, on that front and in the end went along with U.S.-Mexico resolution. But I'm sure there are other areas as well you want to fill us in on Mexico. Well, first, that distinction between the relationship with grassroots movements is is exactly what I think will become a very important distinction and should keep us from lumping progressive, so-called progressive, left-wing, left-center governments together. We need to closely analyze how they're working, what they're doing, and how much they are indeed being advocates for the people's demands instead of just chalking them up to a left-wing category and calling it progress. In Mexico, the relationship with the U.S. government has been difficult. It's been fraught there. There have been recently a number of incidents, including the DEA being taken away from being closed down a special unit here in Mexico, as well as now the United States has opened up consulting process against Mexico for the energy reforms that have taken place, which are really the dismantling of the neoliberal energy reforms that took place in the prior government, something that's always been a center of what Lopez Obrador calls the fourth transformation. The relationship has been built on Lopez Obrador's insistence on national sovereignty, and we see a lot of contradictions within that including the progressive stance that he's taken in many foreign relations forums, including rejecting the organization of American states run by Luis Almagro, who orchestrated the Bolivian coup and who has consistently supported Trump when he was president and right-wing governments in the region in favor of an organism that's made up only of Latin American governments on a more horizontal basis without the participation of the United States called the Community of Latin American Caribbean States. He's also promoted dialogue with Venezuela. He supported Cuba both materially and in international forums and had a close relationship with Cuba And so we're seeing a very progressive stance there, not so much in terms of dismantling the neoliberal economy that Mexico has had for decades. Mexico then is is a mixed bag, I think like all these governments will, will be, and it has to do with the limitations they face as well as the limitations of the particular people who are in power and the limitations, of course, of the right wing and the opposition within their own countries. The meeting was interesting because they talked about areas that they have in common, but they also pointed out some areas in which that they don't have in common. There's still friction in the security relationship, there's still resentment about Lopez Obrador boycotting the Summit of the Americas, which failed because of the exclusion of Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua. So it's not an easy relationship, but we can see huge changes from the utter submission that we saw in the former neoliberal governments to the United States government. Right. Well, thank you for that, Laura Carlson. And of course, we have to see what's going to happen this fall with Lula in Brazil and whether or not, you know, he'll be up against uh, Bolsonaro, who has begun his re-election campaign. So we'll see how all of that goes. But, you know, looking at Colombia, also looking at Chile and Honduras, 
it really gives us hope. Those of us um, living in the belly of the beast, as some of us call it here in the United States, some hope given what is happening in this country. And I'm sure in the UK, they feel similarly given the uh, control of the right wing, the Tory party there. So Laura Carlson, thank you for filling us in. And of course, you'll be back very soon on Sojourner True. Thank you for your work as we continue to follow what's happening south of the border. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Margaret. All righty. And of course, Laura took the time. She's traveling, was speaking to us from the airport. And thus, you heard some of the uh, background sound. We're going to take a very short station break. And Dr. Gerald Horn waiting to fill us in. A lot of news happening on the continent of Africa. Africa now seemingly the heart of a new Cold War. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Red Sky by Leela Downs. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. We're also heard nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And in the United States, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in the state of Mississippi, deep south in the United States, and internationally to our, all of our listeners south of the border. We are now going to welcome Dr. Gerald Horn, who will be filling us in a number of developments, key developments happening on the continent and African, of course, Dr. Gerald Horn is the Moore's Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books. Dr. Horn, welcome and tell us the name of your new book. Thank you for inviting me. The Council of <laughs> Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. Right. And I, I hear it's really getting uh, incredible uh, response, including uh, for those of you who want to uh, can go to our sister station in D.C., WPFW, that you've done some extensive shows on WPFW that hopefully our, our listeners would be able to access. So thank you for that, Dr. Horn, also the author of The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th uh, Century. Now, uh, Dr. Horn, I mentioned in the intro that the continent of Africa is increasingly a target of influence by Russia, China, and the Western powers, and that the reality of the ground is you have 346 million people, a quarter of the entire population of the continent, who are facing some kind of food security, hunger, starvation uh, due to drought exacerbated by climate change. Also, um, poverty, the violence of poverty of, uh, on people and the environment, internal proxy wars and corruption. And then there is the war in the Ukraine, where uh, so many of the grain imports, I understand as high as 40% of grain imports going to the continent uh, came from the Ukraine or from Russia. And now you have both 
the Russian foreign minister, uh, Lavrov, as well as the French president um, touring uh, the, the continent. So Dr. Horn, a lot happening there. So uh, uh, let's see, maybe, maybe um, beginning with um, the Lavrov um, uh, tour and what he is up to there and what Macron may be up to, Dr. Horn. Well, with regard to President Macron of France, uh, in an important meeting with French ambassadors as early as 2019, President Macron had the foresight to acknowledge that the world is going through a fundamental shift, that the world is no longer unipolar as it was after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, that it's multipolar, and that France should adapt accordingly. And I think that that's one reason why you see President Macron spending so much time in France, because after all, it's the French neo-colonial empire in much of Africa that helps to accord France this unique role of being a so-called major power without those uh, French uh, former colonies, such as the ones he's visiting, including Benin, formerly Dahomey, and Cameroon, uh, the other nation that he's visiting, uh, France would just basically be a middle-ranking power. Now, with regard to Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, uh, he visited the Egypt, Uganda, Republic of the Congo, that is to say Congo, Brazzaville, and Ethiopia. Now, part of the visit was a recognition of the fact that many African nations are lukewarm at best with regard to jumping on board the sanctions train against Moscow in light of their intervention in Ukraine. And the Lavrov trip in part was designed to shore up that support and also to help to undermine the idea that it's Russian activity that's preventing grain from being shipped to Africa and other sites, which helps to account in part for the famine-like conditions that you see in countries like Somalia. I should also say that uh, Africa plays a unique role on the international scene because of the balkanization of colonialism. You have 54 uh, African nations, and that's not including the Western Sahara, uh, still under a kind of colonial occupation by Morocco. And that means that Africa has outside strength in the United Nations General Assembly, which allows it a certain kind of lobbying strength. Keep in mind as well that NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization headed by the United States, is not necessarily the most popular alliance in Africa. This has a lot to do with NATO's intervention in 2011, overthrowing the Gaddafi regime in Libya over the protestations of the African Union, the Pan-African continental uh, body. Uh, and of course, there's evidence to suggest that the United Nations and France and its allies went beyond the United Nations mandate in engaging in regime change. And then even before that, if you look at the bitter uh, anti-colonial wars that led up to the independence of South Africa in 1994, with the independence uh, proceeding in Angola and Mozambique in 1975, uh, we see that NATO played a damaging, devastating role on behalf of Portugal, a NATO member, and memories are long enough on the African continent not to have forgotten that. 
And then if you look at some of the countries that Mr. Lavrov visited, we know that Egypt uh, during the era, some decades ago of G.A. Nasser was quite close to Moscow. Recall that the Soviet Union supported Egypt in 1956 when it was subjected to a piratical attack by France, Britain, and Israel over control of the Suez Canal. And after the United States and other North Atlantic countries refused Egypt's uh, plea to help build the Aswan Dam, uh, Moscow stepped in, uh, which was a significant step forward for the development of the Egyptian economy. If you look at Congo Brazzaville, recall that not so long ago, it was known as the People's Republic of the Congo. During the Cold War, it welcomed Black Panthers. And in fact, like Algeria, had a Black Panther legation there, which did not necessarily win friends and influence people in Washington, DC. And if you look at Ethiopia in particular, uh, I think it's really a paradigmatic case because oftentimes when analyzing today's Russia, references made to the previous Soviet experience, 1917 to 1991, but actually more to the point is the pre-1917 Russia, because if you look at Ethiopia, it has styled itself as a kind of Christian regime uh, over the decades and over the centuries. And when it faced uh, intervention from Italy in the 1890s, where Italy sought to liquidate Ethiopia's sovereignty, Ethiopia being the sole independent sovereign African nation at that time, what helped Ethiopia to defeat the Italians was that it was armed to the teeth by Russia. It was a kind of Christian solidarity, if you like. And also, interestingly enough, after the overthrow of his imperial majesty, Haile Selassie, in the 1970s, you had a kind of socialist regime that came to power in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, headed by Mengistu Haile Mariam, now in self-imposed exile in Zimbabwe. And of course, the then Soviet Union helped to prop up uh, that regime until it was overthrown. And so Washington has difficulty in terms of winning friends on the African continent because of its unfortunate history of the slave trade and neo-colonialism and supporting colonial powers such as Portugal. But there is, is fair to say a rift that's developed between African nations and the black American leadership and organizations uh, on the other hand, because the latter have stood alongside Washington with regard to sanctions against uh, Moscow in light of Ukraine. A member of the Congressional Black Caucus has carried legislation that would call for the United States to penalize African nations that refuse to go along with U.S. policy on Moscow. Uh, this has caused outrage uh, in Africa. They see it as a violation of sovereignty, an attempt by the United States to dictate their foreign policy. And I think that given the rather perilous and powerless condition that the Black American community faces as we speak. The Black American community cannot afford to alienate South Africa, Namibia, Zimbabwe, Ethiopia, et cetera. And so I think that we should call for a summit between the leaders of the Congressional Black Caucus and the leaders of the African Union. And I think that the uh, agenda could be wide ranging far beyond this issue of Moscow. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and we see that actually in the Caribbean region, I mean, back to my home country, Barbados, they have definitely um, have regular uh, meetings now with several of the African nations and, and developing uh, that uh, kind of, of diplomacy diplomacy, but also practical uh, cooperation. And Dr. Horn, just yesterday, we did a, a full hour on what has happened in Myanmar, uh, formerly known as, as Burma, where you have a military dictatorship that's, you know, killing thousands of people, just executed for, um, uh, you know, major uh, human rights uh, campaigners. And, and then there were all the atrocities against the Rohingya people. And you have uh, some of the industries, fashion industries and others who have pulled out of the Ukraine, right? But who are still in uh, Myanmar, basically, uh, you know, fundamentally helping that uh, military dictatorship uh, to be propped up. So it does seem to be a double standard uh, going on there. I mean, um, no complaining, I mean, not, not thinking that people in the Ukraine don't need um, help, humanitarian assistance in particular, but also what about Myanmar? And I think that's one of the questions that need to be put uh, to the Congressional Black Caucus, because uh, you, which in some cases could have the reputation of just kind of going along with U.S. foreign policy, even as it's making noise on civil rights uh, here at home. But Dr. Horn, also in, in relation to Africa, then there is China. Now, recently, the, the second China-Africa Peace and Security Forum ministerial meeting uh, was held on July uh, 25th. And apparently, they talked about close strategic communication, strengthening equipment, tele technological cooperation, joint maritime training exercises. That was interesting, uh, the, the maritime training exercises. But also we know now that the, China has outpaced the EU as a major trading, trading partner on the continent. Um, any, any thoughts on um, what China is, is, is doing there now on the continent? Well, it's clear that China is playing a major role in terms of the political economy of many African nations. In Zimbabwe, for example, China has just helped to build a new parliamentary building on the outskirts of Harare, the capital, and that will have economic spinoff in terms of developing virtually a new city there. Zimbabwe's effort to overcome sanctions imposed by the United States, London, Australia, et cetera, and their allies because of Zimbabwe's attempt to address land reform, that is to say, a seizing land from the European invaders, which led to an, uh, an outrage of sanctions against that country. Zimbabwe has been able to st stay afloat, not least because of assistance from China and Russia. If you look at Egypt, for example, China has just built a light rail system from Cairo to a new capital in Egypt built on outside of Cairo, which will similarly have economic spinoff effects. If you look at Ethiopia, uh, China has built another railway system that has been a shot of adrenaline into the mainstream of the Ethiopian economy. If you look at Kenya, uh, China has built a rail system from the Indian Ocean port of Mombasa to the capital Nairobi that has had similarly positive economic uh, impact. 
And so we see that uh, this is evidentiary of what President Macron recognized as early as 2019, as noted, that we're in this unipolar world, which of course leads us to the planned trip of Speaker Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan, the rebel province off the coast of China, that China claims as its own, uh, there has been apocalyptic talk uh, with regard to this trip. Uh, talk about China forcing down the plane of Speaker Pelosi, perhaps on the Chinese mainland or not allowing it to land in Taiwan. Even Speaker Pelosi has brooded that possibility. Uh, Mr. Biden is having a phone call today, perhaps as we speak, with President Xi Jinping of China to address this and other issues. But I bring this up in the context of the current conversation because invited on this delegation of Speaker Pelosi, it's once again uh, Gregory Meeks, chairperson of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, and his Republican counterpart, Michael McFaul uh, of the uh, state of Texas who of course is a Republican. And so this is a looming uh, catastrophe. And I think it also speaks to why many African nations are reluctant to join in the crusade against Moscow because they feel that next they'll be asked to join in the crusade against China. We know that Mr. Biden just returned from a trip to Israel and Saudi Arabia where Iran was high on the agenda. Uh, the United States, like Israel, has not taken off the table the possibility of attacking the Islamic Republic of Iran. There is a suspicion that the United States and its allies might also want to recruit African nations to join along in this uh, latter-day crusade against Iran. Uh, they feel that this is hardly uh, their concern, and perhaps a positive note uh, in terms of reading the mainstream press in the United States, I recall that during the era of the Cold War, the United States and the mainstream press rejected the very idea of the non-aligned movement. That is to say, African, Asian, Latin American nations who were seeking to avoid East-West tensions. With regard to uh, Africa not signing on, to many of these latest escapades by Washington, the New York Times at least does not seem to be uh, highly critical uh, of these African nations uh, in that regard. And that may be a positive sign that they're coming to grips with reality. Yeah, and, and Dr. Harvey, quickly want to move on to South Africa in the few minutes we have left, but also just to note that China's involvement also is bleeding into the diaspora and part and south of the border, which we have discussed, um, you know, before and most recently in relation to Haiti with the UN Security Council discussing um, extending the UN mandate in Haiti and the United States and and uh, and um, Mexico put forward a resolution that somewhat limited uh, small arms and light weapons ammunition to any party on the ground in Haiti. And we hear about all the gang warfare, et cetera, happening in Haiti. But one has to scratch one's head and say, where are impoverished people getting all these 
weapons from, right? Um, but China got involved in that because China was pushing for a total arms embargo of Haiti, which the United States um, opposed. So they're definitely flexing their muscles uh, on the on the global stage on the continent, as well as uh, right in the back door of the United States. Uh, but Dr. Horn, in, in the few minutes that we have left, um, trouble in South Africa. Um, the former South African president, Tembo Mbeki, he's talking about an uprising uh, similar to the Arab Spring happening in South Africa. Uh, tell us about that. You are correct. Uh, at a recent uh, ceremony marking the death of leading ANC member uh, Jesse Duarte, uh, the former South African president, Tabo Mbeki, raised the specter of mass uprisings in South Africa because of disappointment at the government's attempt to address poverty. Uh, then that is coupled by the so-called Farmgate scandal uh, involving the current president Cyril Ramaphosa, where on his sprawling estate in the north of South Africa, while he was away at an African Union meeting, thieves broke in and supposedly were able to find three or four million dollars in foreign currency that they spirited away. There is a question as to whether or not Mr. Ramaphosa actually reported this theft to the authorities. Perhaps he did not because having so much money lying around is not necessarily a positive <laughs> signal for uh, the South African president. And there are attempts now to bring him down, uh, to replace him. But I think that South Africa got uh, a premonition of what might come sooner rather than later, July 2021. And that helped happen, had to do with a virtual national uprising centered, to, to be fair, on the Indian Ocean coast in KwaZulu-Natal in a dispute about the fate of the previous South African president, Jacob Zuma, a charge with corruption of all kinds. And uh, that was a very a stormy episode. And I don't think South Africa has come to grips with it as of yet. Now, on the positive side, in my estimation, is the fact that the leader of the South African Communist Party, Blade Enzamande, uh, stepped down. And he was responsible largely for helping to push Jacob Zuma into office on the premise that he would address all of these problems. But it, it had the exact opposite impact hopefully the new Communist Party leadership, which is an alliance with the ANC, the African National Congress, will address uh, these questions of inequality and poverty. But the larger question is the global economy, Sri Lanka and the debt bomb there is just a hint of what might be befalling uh, nations all over the globe in light of this neoliberal economy that many nations have been forced to accept uh, including South Africa. And so with this global condition, it's very difficult for mid-level economies like South Africa with a population of a mere 55 to 60 million to swim against the tide. But I'm afraid to say that they are going to have to swim against the tide if they are to escape what President, former President Thabo Mbeki outlined in his very startling remarks of a few days ago. 
Right. Well, all of that remains to be seen. Just thank you so much, Dr. Horn, for joining us and, and breaking this down for us. We're going to continue. We, we really want to increase really our coverage of what's happening on the continent. Uh, so central to everything that's happening in the world, including producing um, most of uh, the wealth under the ground that's needed uh, for technology today on the continent of Africa. Dr. Horn, thank you so very much for joining us. Uh, Thank we, you for inviting me. All righty. We are out of time. Uh, today's show produced by Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank our engineer, Gary Baca, our assistant producer, Alicia Vargas. We want to thank Laura Carlson, our other guests on today's show. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. Stay tuned for Democracy Now! Sojourner Truth. We'll be back on the air tomorrow tomorrow with special programming. I hope you stay well and safe. Thank you so very much for joining us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. KPFK is currently seeking applicants for part-time board operators to run the station's broadcast control board for live and pre-recorded programming. The board op team works closely with hosts, producers, and KPFK staff to help ensure that shows, promo spots, and even announcements like this one broadcast properly in a timely manner. Solid communication skills and basic audio and computer literacy are a must. Dependability, flexibility, and positivity are also all absolutely essential qualities.